Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Today, today is finally our discussion of Carson McCullers, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, one of my favorite books I've read this year. Definitely a book I've had to sit on and let marinate a little bit so that I can bring it at least some justice here on the show. We will start out with our typical biography review of the author and the circumstances behind the novel and go into some plot summary, character introduction, then do a deep dive into the main character, John Singer. After that, we'll look at some symbolism and different levels or stages of repression, looking at the writing towards the end of the show, and then doing a cross-literary comparison to round out the episode. This book was written by a 23-year-old Carson McCullers. 23 is my age, so I have a lot of, I think, personal feelings when it comes to this book knowing that Carson McCullers was able to produce what is often considered a masterpiece at such a young age. And it is her debut into the literary world, so she does go on later to produce a lot more short fiction, short stories, and a couple more longer works, but in this case, this is her first novel-length work. It's often compared somewhat to a Russian novel, i.e. Dostoevsky, Tolstoy type of format or impact. I didn't read the novel that way because it's, number one, the scope of it is a lot, lot shorter um, and a lot more confined than a novel from Russian literature like those I just mentioned, those from the authors I just mentioned, and... It's a novel in three parts, but the three parts are distinctly different than something that I would find in, for example, a novel by Tolstoy. So to me, the comparison is not so accurate, maybe, as the comparison of her masterwork being this novel. I think this is a really fine novel, and it's a very influential one for sure. It's a very perceptive one and it shows McCullers writing powers at full force, which we'll talk about. So this book was written in the 1930s and it was published in the year 1940. It's astounding how politically and socially perceptive McCullers was, considering that she wrote this in the 30s, and there are predictions of events like the rise of Hitler, like, for example, also the March on Washington. She's having these developments 
socially and also politically throughout the novel where there's just it's so real it's so immediate the way that she pulls in these themes of for one the rise of national socialism in germany and the massive oppression that starts to happen during that time but also um the racial tensions in the u.s and how those will continue to build up over time and i can't emphasize how creepy it was the extent to McCullers's clairvoyance on these subjects because she is writing so clearly about these particular events in history that do go on to happen but first five ten and then talking about the events in the 1960s 20 years after the novel is published let alone add five years onto that for writing the novel. She's becoming extremely, extremely perceptive, and it takes a really special person to be able to pinpoint socially and politically so many different aspects that end up um, coming to light, whether it's, you know, five years in the future or even, even later. She was close with Truman Capote during her lifetime and she did grow up in the American South and this book is based in the American South in small town America um, during post-World War One, pre-World War II and although she grew up in the American South she didn't live there for her entire life in fact she moved away but would take regular visits which she likened in a quote to Truman Capote to poison and getting her quote-unquote regular dose of poison um, which I find to be a really interesting aspect of her writing because it is highly almost cynical at points and yet there's so much immediacy and it's so realistic hyper realistic in some aspects more comical caricature in some other aspects but she does have her finger on the pulse of the South at this time, and that comes through so beautifully in this novel. The last aspect I wanted to discuss with regard to the novel itself is the influence of the editors. At this time, publishing articles in literary magazines was one of the most lucrative ways you could make an income as a writer. We talk about this quite, quite frequently with William Faulkner's short story collection, Night's Gambit. In particular, the editor of the newest edition of Night's Gambit, John Duval, cites some of the various short stories in the collection as being quote-unquote boulderized at the time of their publication, mostly due to the editors and copywriters, decisions that definitely differed from what Faulkner would have wanted, and that is evidenced by older manuscripts of the texts, including just a lot of cuts. There are so many cuts in Faulkner's writing, especially since the editing or revising process to him was a process of addition rather than subtraction. So you can imagine that after multiple different drafts, there was a lot more writing 
than before, and that wasn't always reflected in the final published versions of the stories. So indeed, in the newest edition of Night's Gambit, the original intentions from Faulkner were more closely followed, at least as well as they could have been based on the archival data that the editor found. It's an amazing work. I would recommend the Faulkner Night's Gambit miniseries we're doing because it's just so, so fun and so, so informative on some of uh, Faulkner's lesser-known short stories. But back to McCullers and The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. The influence of the editors is largely, from what I understand, unknown, except for one tidbit which is that the title of this work was supposed to be The Mute. And in fact, McCullers kind of really tried to make the title The Mute, um, which is exactly, I think, what would match her style the best. It's very, very descriptive because indeed the main character, John Singer, is deaf. And back then they called people who were deaf and never learned to speak deaf mutes. So, titling the book The Mute actually makes complete sense. The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, however, was a title suggested and pushed by the editor, and indeed it adds a whole level of poetic and emotional intensity, not only to the book as you go through reading it, but also to your perceptions before you read the book and after you finish reading it. The title is something I meditated on quite a bit as a reader after I finished reading it and thought a lot about what exactly the title lends to the book and whether I would have preferred The Mute as a title. And I personally would have preferred The Mute just because it's just so McCullers. It just goes with the whole mood of the book so, so well. However, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter is probably a title that will go down for the ages. It's a tremendous title and one that definitely speaks to the more emotional side of the book with the different characters' relationships and their inabilities to listen to each other um, coming to the forefront of the novel. So thematically and also poetically, the title is a good fit. Let's move on to a plot summary with some discussions of character. The book starts out with two deaf individuals. One is John Singer, the main character whose name we've mentioned several times, and the second is his best friend, Spiros Anatopoulos. Spiros works at the town grocer, which is run by a cousin of his, and John Singer works as an engraver for a jewelry store in town. John Singer is definitely the more quote-unquote stable personality of the two, although they have a relatively peaceful and routinated life together, which, as we have learned in the book, has been the case for about 10 years or so. Anatopoulos starts to go down a very slippery slope quite quickly in the first part of the novel, and indeed he gets very ill, and after that starts to act out, starts to publicly defame himself and others, and gets into a lot of legal and other trouble 
which John Singer has to repeatedly pull him out of. And these beautiful and set routines that they have developed and held close to together over time start to fall apart and fall into shambles. It's kind of like when there are small cracks in the armor and then all of a sudden the whole thing goes away. And it's a very, very touching scene because their friendship is not based on a lot of traditional communicative acts. John Singer talks to Anatopoulos using sign language uh, with a just a rigor and a love and a passion that um, he doesn't find after Anatopoulos needs to go away to an insane asylum um, after sort of there's a couple last straws in his behavior. And Anatopoulos himself doesn't seem to have developed or maybe have sustained or kept, maintained his sign language as well as Singer, so it's not so clear whether he can communicate very much in sign language or even understand what Singer is saying. That seems to be no problem for Singer, however, as he readily and very steadily communicates to Anatopoulos throughout the novel even after he leaves for the insane asylum. A couple other characters that I want to highlight in short order, uh, there's Jake Blount, and he is a an outsider of the town who comes in and is definitely an alcoholic. He's drunk through almost all the novel, if not all of the novel, and his place of preference to drink is Biff Brannon's restaurant slash bar which he, at the beginning of the novel, operates with his wife and later alone. Jake Blount is known for these big personality swings, just a lot of the typical traits associated with an alcoholic you will see reflected in Jake Blount. He is a political idealist and meets with other political idealists throughout the novel to varying degrees of success. And Biff Brannon is a very quiet sort of man, but his inner world is quite unsettling. We gain a lot with the third person narr narration in this regard because Biff Brannon often has thoughts about, for example, young children that I'm not going to repeat here, but you get what I mean. Um, in particular, to a young lady named Mick, and Mick has aspirations of being a musician. She is so in love with music and she will go in the middle of the night to um, richer families' homes and listen to Beethoven and listen to different classical pieces on the radio. And she seems to have a quite developed aptitude for it considering that she has no training. She'll remember bits and pieces of the symphony and then the whole thing at once and just her, not only her passion for it, but her drive for it is just so lovely and admirable to read about throughout the novel. She often visits Biff Brannon's restaurant, store, bar, 
in order to get candy or other sweet treats like this when her family has the money. Her family is a big family and they run the one of the boarding houses in town. So Singer eventually goes to live there along with a couple other minor characters. And the last character I'd like to mention or spotlight here is Dr. Copeland, who is a black medical doctor in the town. He has a daughter and two sons, and the daughter works for Mick's family as a servant, and the two sons run in and out of varying degrees of trouble. However, Dr. Copeland has very idealistic traits as well, similar to Jake Blount's in some ways, radically different in others. There's a conversation near the end of the book which arguably leads to Dr. Copeland's what I would call an ideological stalemate or ideological decline at a certain point. And this conversation is, of course, with Jake Blount, who is sort of his rival or mirror in some ways. Again, it is very tricky waters to start to compare these two characters, but definitely in that ideological discussion they have at the end of the novel, there's something that changes definitively in both characters. All of the characters I mentioned, including Mick, Biff Brannon, Blount, and Dr. Copeland, they come to Singer's apartment in Mick's house to discuss whatever is on their minds with them. He becomes a sort of almost therapeutical figure, and all of the characters in some way or other attribute these feelings of understanding complete agreement to Singer with their, with respect to their own viewpoints. So for example, Jake Blount, they drink together and they discuss uh, his ideological preferences and ideals, and Jake Blount sees a resounding, yes, that's right, in John Singer's countenance. Biff Brannon also discusses the things on his mind and sees a similar form of sympathy in Singer's figure, Mick borrows uh, Singer's radio and listens to classical music and uh, starts to discuss her dreams with him um, and with nobody else. Um, I should mention, do all of these characters do this, discuss their personal and private thoughts with somebody else? And Dr. Copeland starts to come after a certain amount of time because he sees the sim a similar amount of understanding and intelligence behind the eyes of Mr. Singer. He rarely does communicate to these people. And in that way, his character, I'll go into the deep dive into Singer at this point. In that way, his character is oddly one-dimensional, oddly dull, because he becomes this beautiful and I think kind of almost uncomfortable mirroring figure throughout the novel. And so he remains 
relatively undeveloped in terms of his preferences, rather than being cleanly and quiet and orderly, are never really stated. His actual ideas about everything that the four individuals tell him are not really um, reciprocated or commented on. There's very, very few instances where he says things on his own mind, where he communicates things that are meaningful to him with these other individuals. And so, you know, he might write on a memo something that he would like, and they're usually like commands or requests rather than opinions or just sentences. I think because the communicative cost in terms of the time and all of this is really high for him. Because nobody speaks sign language in the community other than Anatopoulos, who is now at the Asane Asylum, quite far away, he's resorting to writing down his requests on a piece of paper. He also has these cards that he gives to people that basically say, I can read lips, please don't shout that kind of um, gist. So he's very, very limited in terms of what he's willing to communicate and also in a certain extent what he's able to communicate, not because of his own communicative ability, but because of the limitations within his community of people not being able to speak sign language, not being able to accommodate him in certain ways. Um, and it's clear that he's just a beautifully empathetic person and to a certain extent likes the company, is tired out with the company. We get this kind of back and forth sometimes um, in, this, in the novel, but who in some ways, and I think in very important ways, becomes a staple figure in these individuals' lives. So he almost operates in this novel as a and I hesitate to use this word, so I'm separating here from the character, the person, singer, and looking at the literature. He almost operates as a literary device to get these other characters to talk and to have some sort of figure in the plot who is motivating the political and social perceptions that the author, McCullers, may have or, separately, that the characters may also embody at this time. At the... not at the very end of the novel, about two-thirds, a little more than that through, Singer, spoiler alert, commits suicide. And this is after several attempts at visiting Anatopoulos. He's successful twice, once when he brings a big fruit basket and you know, all of these gifts, and then the second time when um, he brings a projector and the entire mental facility watches these um, almost stop-motion kind of films on the projector, and Anatopoulos is not really able to communicate much during these sessions other than facial expressions, that kind of thing, uh, serious enjoyment or boredom, whichever the case may be. Singer, however, is the one who is flooding out. He's just signing everything that comes to mind for the entire duration of his visit. And this is not a time when there's a lot of workers' comp and vacation days and all that. 
So Singer is using all the time he has plus extra time to go see Anatopoulos, not to mention taking on debt to pay for these extravagant gifts, starting to basically run himself dry financially in other areas. So he really does go to every measure possible to still take care of his friend, the only person who can really hear him and understand him in that sense. And that tension between silence and spoken voice or silence and noise, that's a really very interesting comparison in the novel. Especially considering, again, that Anatopoulos in this sort of silent but very communicative speech um, it's not totally silent. I went down like a whole rabbit hole looking at American Sign Language and the different developments of sign language. It's fascinating. I would highly recommend it. Um, it's possible that um, Singer was speaking a very early version of American Sign Language, maybe not the fully standardized version at this point, um, which is why, for example, there's mention of signing with only one hand, which is sort of an American style. So there's a little bit less standardization, but these schools for um, teaching sign language and teaching lip reading and things like this were starting to become very popular and more standardized starting in the 1800s, which is amazing and very, very interesting. So I highly recommend that. But the third time that Singer takes emergency leave off of work to go see Anatopoulos, he goes to the mental facility and finds out that Anatopoulos is dead. And after that, Singer, very in short order, commits suicide. An interesting aspect that I wanted to bring up at this point in the episode is the various levels of repression that McCullers writes into the novel. There is not only the societal repression that is happening, so in the American South there's societal repression of any ethnic group other than white people, and there's familial oppression as well when it comes to Mick, for example, Mick's family very quickly starts to become poorer and poorer. Um, so there's familial slash economic oppression, but then familial repression as well. Um, Mick not being able, for example, to go pursue what she needs to, rather than starting to practice piano more and more at school, after school, she ends up having to get a job and having to grow up very, very quickly. There's also individual repression. So if you think about Singer, think about any number of these characters. Copeland, Copeland is constantly having to restrain himself, constantly under this like massive societal pressure, massive community pressure, as somebody who is black, but who also has a different job or vocation and also different levels of education, ideas, than other people in his immediate community. And then 
thinking about almost Biff Brannon in that kind of similar way to Singer, that he has this like amazing level of individual repression, the thoughts that he thinks internally and then eventually starts to say to Singer, and even some of these thoughts don't get articulated to Singer, he is just repressing. <laughs> and there's also sort of at the more general level institutional repression as well when it comes to um, schools, when it comes to education, fields of work, all of this, there's a huge level of institutional repression and oppression at this time. And before we do some cross-literary comparisons and pack up for today, I wanted to read a couple passages from this novel. There's just no way to talk about it without reading it. And I really, really just love the way that McCullers writes. There's something just so clear and so perceptive again about her writing. I'm going to start just on the first page and read a little bit of the intro for you all. Quote, In the town there were two mutes, and they were always together. Early every morning they would come out from the house where they lived and walk arm in arm down the street to work. The two friends were very different. The one who always steered the way was an obese and dreamy Greek. In the summer, he would come out wearing a yellow or green polo shirt stuffed sloppily into his trousers in front and hanging loose behind. When it was colder, he wore over this a shapeless gray sweater. His face was round and oily, with half-closed eyelids and lips that curved in a gentle, stupid smile. The other mute was tall. His eyes had a quick, intelligent expression. He was always immaculate and very soberly dressed. What a beautiful beginning passage. And again, it gets right to the point. They're these two best friends. They're very contrastive in these obvious superficial ways, but also deeper down as well. Anatopolis ends up becoming a lot more superficial, for example, than his counterpart. But Again, the way that her sentences are structured, they're very short, they're very subject, verb, object, they're very linear. There's always sort of this driving undercurrent to them, even when it's something like description or characterization. It's just wonderful writing. And this second passage is a passage that describes the almost rhetorical use of Singer's character to bring out all of these characteristics in the other characters in the novel. And this is chapter 7 at the very, very end, the last paragraph. During the moonlit January nights, Singer continued to walk about the streets of the town each evening when he was not engaged. The rumors about him grew bolder. An old Negro woman told hundreds of people that he knew the ways of spirits come back from the dead. A certain peace worker claimed that he had worked with the mute at another mill somewhere else in the state, and the tales he told were unique. The rich thought he was rich, and the poor considered him a poor man, like themselves. And as there was no way to disprove these rumors, they grew marvelous and very real. Each man described the mute as he wished him to be. So again, wow. <laughs> but... It gets right to the point. It's so, so logical and driven, this language that she's using. Um, the sentences are so pared down. There's description, there's adjectives, you know, every once in a while in the text, but it's just such a beautifully pared down 
um, passage, and it gets right to the point, which is that Singer is not really his own person anymore. He becomes this reflective device for other people to use in their own ideas and thoughts about the world. And let's finish up by talking about some cross-literary comparisons. I already talked about Faulkner a bunch at the beginning of this episode, but I'm going to mention Night's Gambit again. Light in August, this sort of chronology of the story reminds me a bit of Light in August. Light in August is technically the first novel that Faulkner starts to experiment with stream of consciousness style in, so stylistically it's very different, but the scenery and the various descriptions kind of reminds me of this, and also the tension between the inner and outer worlds of these characters uh, definitely reminds me of this novel. Cormac McCarthy, um, in All the Pretty Horses, in very, very many of his books, uses regional dialogue and regionalisms and time stamps um, that are just so expertly and intelligently included in his different works. And McCullers starts to do something very similar with her use of regional dialogue, which I am awed by for many different reasons. But her use of dialogue um, in the community and her use of just regional variations of speech and her just fine ear for language is wonderful. Um, Hem Hemingway, The Sun Also Rises. That is um, an amazing novel from him, but just the strong, like, short sentences. Um, she uses a great vocabulary here, but it's not overly intellectual. And that's something that definitely reminds me of Hemingway. Just the flow of her sentences sounds, at least to me, like the beautiful prose and The Sun Also Rises. This Side of Paradise by um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, also similar work from this time period. Um, just the characterization reminds me a bit of the characters in This Side of Paradise, um, how it's so, so character-driven, and there is a plot, of course, but the main characters are what really make the novel. Also, Philip Roth, um, American Pastoral, he has a more non-fiction book called Patrimony. Um, the style, sort of the political perceptiveness, that all reminds me of Philip Roth. And Philip Roth is a much more contemporary example, of course, like Cormac McCarthy, um, for this kind of style of writing. And it's in some ways very American. Um, the way that they incorporate regionalisms or these various um, political, political comments or symbols. Also, Philip Roth's short stories. I am a huge fan of those, so that's a small plug for <laughs> Philip Roth. And also, um, The Jungle. There's a huge socialist and anti-capitalist expose in the last, like, two-thirds of The Jungle that nobody talks about. I'm talking about The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, which is a novel written a bit previous to this one, 1920s. Um, and it's mostly known for its descriptions of the meatpacking industry in Chicago and the greater areas. has turned a lot of people vegetarian over time, <laughs> but um, nobody talks about this political um, 
these political associations towards the end of the novel, which I find fascinating, but they're definitely there and definitely also remind me of Jake Blount's and Dr. Copeland's various political musings throughout the novel. And with that, A Heart is a Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers. I highly, highly recommend this book. Like I said, it was one of my favorites so far this year. I would gladly read it again. It's not a book for the faint of heart just because of the very serious adult themes that happen throughout the novel, but nevertheless, it's a book that is just so beautifully written. It holds up really well. There are, of course, things that are a little bit dated about it, um, but a book that is very, very powerful as a piece of literature. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see each other next week. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.